Today we're going to return to Ephesians chapter 4 and look specifically at verses 29 and 30. I'll remind you we're looking here at the exhortations of Paul as he begins to apply the doctrines of salvation and sanctification that he has written of in the preceding chapters. All of this seems to be summed up for us in the 24th verse of the 4th chapter, the verse that just precedes the therefore of verse 25 where Paul begins to lay down these exhortations and expectations of believers. And that verse says that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. For us, these next verses comprise what should cause us to greatly examine ourselves and the life that we are living before God and before one another. We've dealt with verse 25, put away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. We've looked at verse 26, be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Verse 7, 28, excuse me. Let him who stole steal no longer, but let him labor, working what is good with his hands, that he may have something to give him who has need. And then today, verse 29 and 30. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but that which is necessary, but that which is good. But what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This seems to follow the same pattern of the negative first. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Then its positive counterpart. But what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers and then the motive, the motive being found in verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Would you pray with me and ask for the Lord's help? Father, we come to you. We confess that all of this is vanity unless you come alongside of us, unless your spirit is here and present and active among us. Not only is our singing in vain, but even our attempt to preach and hear is in vain. So Father, we appeal to you by the mercies of God so that Jesus Christ may be exalted among us, that you would come, that you would meet with us, that you would open your word to us, and that the spirit of truth would declare it. We ask it, in Christ's name, amen. So obviously, these verses deal with the way we talk. What comes out of our mouth? And I'm going to make an assumption. It's an assumption that I trust will be true in my heart first, and then in many of yours, that the time that we spend in these verses this morning is going to bring conviction I pray and hope that it will in my own heart 
and in yours. It may bring the scorn of others, but conviction to some, perhaps even many. And when we are convicted of the Spirit, we have to remember that we have an advocate with the Father, the man Christ Jesus, who has died and dealt finally, fully with our sin. The other thing that may arise here as we go through this this morning is the temptation to just ignore it or to cast it off as legalism. It's interesting, isn't it, that we always cry legalism at the things which come, come close to home. Where the scripture begins to cut and we bleed, then our first line of defense is to cry towards legalism and to delve heavily into the grace of God. Well, we need to learn, Lord willing, to delve heavily into the grace of God and then have obedience flow out of that, fruit flow out of that. So undoubtedly, from the oldest to the youngest, beginning with myself and extending to every Christian in the room, there is no doubt that every one of us has room to be more obedient to these verses than we currently are. Our speech reflects who we are. We're taught in the scriptures that our speech flows out of our heart. The image that is painted for us is that our tongue just dips out of our heart what is there and makes it known. I think it's been said this way before, your tongue is, is the bucket that goes down into the well of your heart and draws out what is there. Well, these verses begin to speak to that. And these are verses that we need to, Lord willing, understand the importance of. This whole paragraph from verse 25 down through the end of the fourth chapter are exhortations, expectations. It's not too strong to call them commands that are written by Paul, inspired of the Spirit, to equip the people of God to be the people of God, to look like the people of God, to speak like the people of God to deal with one another relationally as members of one another. It's, all of this comes together as a package. We're going to see that as we get into verse 30, Lord willing, a little later. But let me give you a few other words of introduction here. John Stott is a name that you'll recognize. John Stott, in his commentary on the book of Ephesians, makes a simple statement. He says, if or since we are truly a new creation of God, we shall undoubtedly develop new standards of conversation, a new way of speaking, not just in the words, but the spirit of the words, the heart behind the words. S.M. Ball is a name you may not be familiar with, but he says pretty much the same thing in another way. He says, Paul is showing just how extensive the claim of Christ is on the life of his people. It extends all the way to their speech. Christ is Lord of your life. Do you make that declaration? Then he is also Lord of your mouth and of your tongue and of your speech. James tells us in verses that we'll look at later and read, no man can tame the tongue. So then what? Are we left to be mastered by this unruly evil that resides in our mouths, this poison that James calls it, the tongue? 
If no man can tame it, then we have to ask the question, how then can the tongue be tamed? The only answer is by Jesus Christ or through Him can our tongue be tamed and so we can speak in ways that honor and glorify Him. The way you talk should be countercultural. What do I mean by that? It doesn't take long if you read or listen to the news, if you immerse yourself into the entertainment of the world in various forms, or just the normal discourse you may have with someone in your sphere of life. It's not going to take long to show and to realize that the speech of the world is perverse. The speech of the world is often obscene. The speech of the world is often not only degrading, but absolutely outright offensive to the holiness of God and should be offensive to the people of God. You remember just a few verses back, we read this, be angry and do not sin. I think this is one area where we could apply that our reaction to speech and to the way the Lord's name is taken in vain, the way that the Lord's name is brought into cursing, and the way that people in general who are not Christians, and sadly, sadly, even many Christians, the way that they speak is not giving honor to Christ. Here's a phenomenon that's happening in our day. And, and personally in me, it's a provocation to anger, yet Lord willing, not unto sin. And it is when preachers curse in the pulpit. To me, it's not fitting. I understand the impetus behind it, I think, when they say, well, we need to, to speak and talk and, and look like our culture. No. You need to look like Christ to your culture. Amen. You need to speak like Christ to your culture. Now, some, you will read their justification for cursing while they are presenting the good news, and, and it's couched in the forms of being attention-grabbing awakening people and no doubt I could do that right here and right now and those of you who are already drifting off to sleep might be aroused by the word that I say but that's not my intent I don't want to grab your attention by using some type of profanity or cursing I want the Spirit of God to grab your attention and present to you the beauty of Jesus Christ and so back to this speech that is to be countercultural. You and I are to speak differently. And this has so much more to do than just curse words or what we would consider vulgar words or obscene words. It is so more far-reaching than that. It goes to the very core of who we are. And Lord willing, we're going to see that as we go through this. And another quote that I'll give you here at the beginning is, God has a more glorious plan for our lives and for our tongues. 
than to parrot the sayings and the speech of the world. It's not, it should not be lost upon us that speech has such a high place in the plan and the economy of God. God, Our God is a living, speaking God. Go back to Genesis in the beginning. God said, He spoke, and things sprang into existence. We have a word of God, a written word of God that is come to us as being inspired of him. The scriptures say every word is breathed out by him, inspired of God. So speech, this is one of the greatest ways that we can reflect the holiness and the nature of God by how our, how our words come out of our mouth. And this is exactly what Paul says about words proceeding out of your mouth. I'm going to talk more about that word in just a minute. But before I get there, I want to make sure that we're understanding none of these general exhortations in this paragraph, verses 25 through the end of chapter 4, none of these exhortations to holiness or bearing fruit in the life of a Christian is to be understood as a mere washing and polishing of things external. All of these are are coming from the inside out. We don't want to be the whitewashed tombs that Jesus speaks of. And basically by calling the Pharisees and the scribes hypocrites and whitewashed tombs, what he's saying is everything about you looks to be absolutely perfect on the outside. But do you remember what he said was inside? Dead men's bones, where there is rot and decay and no doubt a stench and an odor. So can we just lay that aside? This is not a mask that we're putting on. We're not calling for the reformation of Christian speech just so we can say that from the outside everything looks well, and then in a a moment of our own, by ourselves or with our wife or whomever, we can then go back into a way of speaking that is full of obscenities and vulgar Things and not just vulgar and obscene, but as we're going to see later, to fall back into a, a way of gossip and slander. And I was going to save these for the end, but I'll just bring them in here. Husbands not loving their wives in the way that they converse with, to them, and about them. Wives not loving their husbands by the way they converse with, to, and about them. Children not honoring their parents by the way that they speak to them. You see how far-reaching this command is. It's not just, here's a list of words that you can't use. That's far too easy. It's not just, here is a list, refrain from using these words, and you have accomplished obedience to verses 29 and 30. It goes far more deeply into your heart and life than just abstaining from a few words. It goes to the very motive of why you speak at all. And are you bringing God glory by the way that you speak? Richard Baxter, an old Puritan author, he writes about this hypocrisy and and masking, and the whitewashing of the tomb at great length. And I've just pulled a couple of sentences out of what he wrote. 
He said to make up a religion of doing or saying something that is good while the heart is void of the Spirit of Christ and sanctifying grace is a hypocrite's religion. Far too many of us look right on the outside and yet inwardly we're far from being what we ought to be. That was the issue with the, with the Pharisees in Christ's day. I, I would imagine, you've heard this before, but I would imagine if we had seen a Pharisee and we had seen how well they were put together, everything about them physically presented to us was immaculate and in perfection. And there was meaning and reason for the way that they looked. And they could have articulated that. They appeared to be the very picture of holiness, just like some of us can appear to be the very pictures of holiness, like we and our family have it all together, right? But inside, just like the Pharisees, there is something far to the opposite end of the extreme. So the external doesn't matter so much as what's inside. Richard Baxter goes on to say, the hypocrite of this kind puts scorn on God as if he thought God was like the heathen idols that have no eyes and no ears. But we realize, don't we children, and all of us, that God sees all. He hears all. You may refrain from saying a word here or there, but he sees beyond that into the very depth of your heart and he knows the putrefaction that lies there. And so we could spend a lot of time surveying the scriptures, looking in the Proverbs and the Psalms and in the book of James particularly and compile all of these verses and we're going to do some of that, but we could compile verse after verse after verse that speaks to how we are to speak and how we are not to speak. But I want to just pull from one place right now. And that is the third chapter of the book of James. And then we're going to actually look at the words of Ephesians 4, 29 and 30. But listen as I read James chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. Every kind of beast and bird, reptile and creature of the sea is tamed, and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil. It is full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth both fresh and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. The point that James is making basically is what's in here is coming out. And it can be if not tamed by Christ and redeemed 
absolutely the most destructive thing in the world. Do you realize that that's what James is saying? That your tongue, the words that you speak, the attitude of your heart, the countenance on your face as they come out, these words are one of the most destructive things in all of nature. A world of iniquity, defiling the whole body, set on fire by hell. This, these words from Brian Chappelle have, have interested me this week as I've thought about what James said and these verses particularly in Ephesians chapter 4. He writes of this in his commentary on the book of Ephesians. And he's noticing specifically, if you look at verse 29, the word proceed. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. This is the beginning of ungodly speech. And he says, think of this. Language, particularly bad language, begins a journey of decay and destruction as soon as as it comes out of your mouth. How many of us perhaps are bearing consequences and still thinking on words that were said to us in anger, hurtful words, perhaps obscene words, mean-spirited words that were spoken to us years ago, perhaps decades ago, but having proceeded out of someone's mouth, they are still wreaking havoc in our own thoughts and in our own lives Today. That is the, the, the danger and the absolute destructive force of words that are spoken either from an unredeemed heart or in, from a heart that is in outright rebellion to God and in rebellion to every relationship around it. Only God can put this fire out. Foul, obscene language, especially when directed towards a person or a group of people, starts a fire of destruction that only the intervening grace of God can extinguish. I wonder if we really and truly believe that. Some of you are looking at me like you don't believe it. Like this is just not for me. I've got a handle on my speech. This is... Tell me something different. Tell me something else that is more applicable. Well, there is nothing more applicable than the way you speak and the way that it either confirms that you are being more conformed to the image of Christ or that it is showing just exactly how far you who think you have it together really have to go. Probably in most, it's the latter. This man that I've been quoting, Brian Chappelle, goes on to say, how different is this from what we have taken as a common thing these days and express a misunderstanding of grace which basically says, let me show you how well I understand grace. Let me show you how mature I am as a Christian. I can use coarse humor. I can use profanity. I can use these words and I can do all of these things with no guilt. That's my understanding of grace. Well, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Paul says, God forbid. God forbid. Let's look at the words of verse 29. He says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Children, this applies to you and your relationship with your parents. 
husband and wife, this applies to you in the way you speak to one another. Church members, this applies to you in the way that we speak to one another. It applies to every relationship and every conversation that you will ever have with anyone ever again. This applies to that. Notice how all-pervasive this is. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. The word corrupt here means that which is decomposing or that which is putrid. It it refers to the decomposition of, of wood or to a body as it is decomposing. These words are not to be found in the Christian's mouth, much less are they to be proceeding from the Christian's mouth. It includes, obviously, cursing and obscenities, but goes all the way to gossip and slander. How how far we understand the reach of this verse is how much conviction it's going to bring, how much the Spirit will use it to bring conviction to our heart. We're far too comfortable in the way that we speak to and about each other in a way that is not God-honoring far too easy to fall into these types of things and it's far too easy just to think it doesn't matter that it's no big deal and again the heart of the matter is it's a reflection of who you are in your inmost being if you're a slanderer if you gossip or on the other hand if you're one who loves to hear it That reveals a lot of the heart too, doesn't it? So much of this is bound up in our closest relationships. And this is where so much of the hypocrisy of it all begins to show itself. You know, hypocrisy, I assume, could be boiled down to some, some statement like this. Expecting perfection or near perfection in someone else, but not holding yourself nearly anywhere close to that same standard. And I wonder, this week begins a new year, If your conversations and mine were recorded, at the end of the day, how much of it would be replayed and found to be in obedience and submission to verse 29? Is that an interesting thing to think on? How much of our conversations could be replayed? How how many of your words concerning your fellow church members, how many of your words concerning your pastor, how many of your words concerning the people sitting in front of you and behind you and beside you and around you and how many of the conversations you have and how how many of these things would actually be found to be in obedience and submission to let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. But there's a positive counterpart. The positive counterpart is, is... but what is good for necessary edification or words that fit the moment. 
It's not that we just refrain from speaking in a negative way. It's that we replace that. Remember the whole pattern. Put off the old man. Put on the new man. The negatives are putting off. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. The positives are the putting on of the new man. So what do I do in the place of perverse speech or slander or gossip? What's the positive counterpart of that? Well, what is good, obviously good, is the exact opposite of the word corrupt in verse 29, for necessary edification. Let me extend this question to every single one of you in the room. When is the last time you had a conversation that was intent upon being edifying to the person you're talking to? That was intent, not just, sometimes we're just silent. Don't say anything, and we think we have fulfilled some command of love. By, and I admit there is some obedience here to just refraining from saying certain things. But sometimes the requirement is to speak what is good for necessary edification. Each circumstance, each situation, each conversation will present a circumstance to where a positive word of edification, truth of the Scripture, needs to be introduced into it. Speak what is good for necessary edification. What's the reason? So that it may impart grace to the hearers. Now here's another penetrating question that you and I can ask ourselves. Do my conversations, does my speech, is it imparting grace? Does it qualify... Is that kind of speech that Paul says, let your words be gracious as seasoned with salt. Is that who people perceive me to be? Or do they see me as being just a complaining, slanderous, gossiping? And even if not that, if none of those things come out of my mouth, do they see me as being someone who is ready and willing to engage in edifying conversation? To impart grace to them. There is great reason for the negative and the positive in verse 29. And it comes to us in verse 30. I think verse 30 is far more applicable and far reaching than just immediately going back into verse 29. I think we can carry it all the way back up at least to verse 25 where all of these expectations are being laid out by Paul to believers. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We're taught here that corrupt words proceeding out of our mouths grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And again, I think we can go back to verse 25. We're taught that lying grieves the Spirit. I think that letting the sun go down on your wrath and stealing and no longer working with your own hands what is good, all of these things are grieving the Spirit. Offending the Spirit of God within us. Grieving Him. Some... Curtis Vaughn goes on to say it is wounding the love of the Spirit in you by the words that are coming out of your mouth. How so? Because they are nothing even 
to be comparable to the Spirit of truth who dwells in you. They're not a reflection of the gracious Spirit of God that has taken residence in your heart and life and is bearing witness to Christ. The words coming out of your mouth so long as they are corrupt in any form are grievous to the Spirit of God within you. This is a tremendous point that Curtis Vaughn goes on to make with this, and I I hope you'll hear this and, and really give some thought to it, not just here and now, but later in the day or the week, that you'll really try to understand what what he is expressing here in grieving the Spirit. These are Curtis Vaughn's words. This fact explains the misery of many believers, for it is precisely by reason of permitting such practices that they have lost the joy, peace, and blessedness they once knew. Let me see if I can maybe rephrase that a bit. Have you ever met an unhappy believer? Yeah, perhaps perhaps you and I represent those unhappy believers at times. You know, the Bible tells us that we're to be filled with joy. Go, read the book of Philippians. The, the entire theme of that epistle is to be filled with joy for what Christ has done for you. But so often we find ourselves for some reason in what Curtis Vaughn calls misery. Now, here's the equation that we have to make. The Spirit of God in us, the fruit of the Spirit, according to Paul in Galatians 5, are... Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such there is no law. What happens when the Spirit of God or Christ in us is grieved? Or God forbid, quenched? MacArthur says that grieving is the beginning of quenching the Spirit. If we grieve or quench the Spirit, what happens to the the manifest evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in our life? These things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, long-suffering, and the like. What happens to them? They, in essence, dry up on the vine. Because there is something in our life that is being manifest from us that is so contrary to who He is as the Spirit of God indwelling us that it has grieved Him And for a season, or for a time, He has withdrawn Himself. Now obviously it's true that we will never be forsaken, we will never be abandoned by the Spirit of God, but I think in a sense of chastisement, there are times and senses in our life as Christians when we feel like, my prayer life is dead. My prayers are are hitting the ceiling and bouncing back. I have no desire in my heart and life for the things of God or the things of Christ. I have no desire for the Word of God. None of these things. Well, then ask yourself a serious penetrating question. What types of things have you allowed into your life that are grieving the Spirit? Because it is the Spirit of Christ in you that produces the desire and the motivation to be obedience and if you are willingly and knowingly grieving him by corrupt speech or any of these other things in this paragraph then can we really expect anything more than what Curtis Vaughn calls Christian misery 
it's foolishness and vanity to want to live the blessed, joyful, abundant life of Christ and at the same time entertaining and allowing these very things we're exhorted to shun, to put off, to allow them to exist in our life. You can't marry these things together. You can't marry together a habitual pattern of corrupt speech and living a life of a joyful Christian. You can't marry together lying and the life of a joyful Christian. You can't bring these two things to the table and expect for it to bear fruit in your life. Some of us need to amend the way that we speak. Be conscious of the way, conscious of the way that we speak to and with and about other people. And remember, it's not just so that we'll look right. Not just so that if someone is measuring our words in a scale and in a balance, they'll all pass the test. It's because as Christians, you and I are salt and light. How salty can a Christian be whose speech is just like the world around him? How much light can a Christian bring to a conversation if his speech is full of corruption, cursing and bitterness, slander and gossip, complaining, all of those things point to a, a lack of something and a lot of them point to a lack of contentment. You know, a corrupt word proceeding out of your mouth would, would extend to just complaining over the lot in life where God has you. What kind of testimony does that bear to Christ if all we do is engage ourselves in that type of speech. Psalm 141 and verse 3 says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep a watch over the door of my lips. To some degree or another, as I said at the beginning, the Spirit of God will either have brought conviction to you of these things or total rejection, unconcern, disinterest. And I'm speaking to those that realize that they are image bearers of Jesus Christ. And to some degree, the Spirit of God has settled on you. And you realize far too often, to some degree, corrupt words proceed out of my mouth. Well, 
There is in the Psalter a song, it's even in our Trinity hymnal, based on Psalm 51. We sing it at night to our girls as we're putting them to bed, or Bambi does, and occasionally I do. It says, God be merciful to me. On thy grace I rest my plea. Plenteous in compassion thou. Blot out my transgressions now. Wash me, make me pure within. Cleanse, O cleanse me from my sin. That's the right way to approach conviction. Recognize it for what it is. Don't justify it. Don't justify your sin before a holy God. That'll never work. Repent of it. Turn from it. Embrace Christ again. And know that this advocate you have with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, will cleanse you from your sin. And He will wash you and make you pure within. How basic. Again, we said it last week, how basic are these expectations? Don't steal. Work. Don't lie. Don't let corrupt words proceed out of your mouth. How basic are these? Extremely. These are the very things, especially this one, that we struggle with to the greatest degree. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for grace and mercy to be found in Jesus Christ. Father, we realize that our words, the attitudes of our heart, the way we speak, everything is a reflection of our heart and what's there. If we allow corrupt words to proceed out of our mouth, then that is a, an evidence of corruption to some degree in our heart that needs to be dealt with. And so, Father, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, bring conviction here. Help us to give glory to God in every conversation, to choose our words carefully, that we might be those that speak a word in due season like a well-driven nail, not to use our words rashly or to think the things we say don't matter. Lord, help us in our relationships, our closest relationships with our family, our friends and fellow church members. Help us in these relationships to converse in a way that brings you honor and glory, to speak a word in due season that imparts grace to the hearers and is good for necessary edification. All of us stand in need of being edified. All of us stand in need of being ministered to, and you, by your Spirit, through redemption and a renewed heart, you have supplied and provided for us, through one another, such means to be edified and built up and encouraged, but how often we let it go undone. But how quick we are to the contrary. 
Father, forgive us. Help us moving forward to bear a more distinct and clear image that we are indeed being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ who spoke truth in season. Father, we pray for the conversion of those who are without Christ, that you by your Spirit would work in their heart, draw and woo them unto yourself, we pray, and ask it in his name. Amen.